The message that I have is relatively short. And again, I say that for your encouragement, even though most of you will never believe me when I say it. <laughs> so as you know, in this ministry, it's based on what God has done and the revelation that he's brought. And I'm still a bit astounded by the fullness of some of this revelation. Again, you've heard me say, and I don't know how many times I'll say it again and over and over, but one of the greatest shifts in me was when I realized that the Bible was not a book to tell us what to do, but it was a book of identity. I can't tell you what that did. I can't tell you the depth of how that, uh, how that struck me because it not only explained why the church is in so much turmoil and in so much conflict, because every time we try to use this Bible to tell us what to do, we can't agree on what it says. So all we're left with is that conflict. So it was really never designed to be that. It was always a book of identity. And so there have been many, many things that have occurred. Explain to me the whys and, the, and the, the causes and the effects and all the things we talked about this morning upon that realization that this Bible is a book of identity. But no matter how much I talk about it, I still seem to find things that need to be said. Things that will take us, and I don't know to whom it would give clarity or to whom it would give inspiration or correction or healing or what anybody needs here. I don't know what God wants to bring to you. But I do know that every time I talk about identity, according to the prophecy that was spoken over this church, a vision that was given. And again, if you walk into my office, there's a set of little train cars that are setting up on my shelf. Those train cars were brought in to me in my office in response to a vision that was given. And the vision was that, because I was hoping, as any pastor would, that the train, I could bring this train into the station, preach the truth, and the church would get on. And we could sail away and go do amazing things. The picture was that the train would pull into the station and two or three would get on and we would go. And the train would come around and two or three would get on. So I've never since that day been disappointed that only two or three get it and really connect with this message at a time. So I, I preach it, I teach it, the newness that God brings, hoping that with each new message that God would connect it to somebody and suddenly there would be this realization and one more would get on and we could, uh, and we could move forward. One of the more difficult things when someone comes into my office is helping them take that first glimpse at themselves. When they start talking about identity, one of the things that will begin to happen is that instead of pulling out the rule book to see how someone's doing, one of the things that God will do first is sitting in front of them, he will put this mirror in front of them. Because what does he want you to see when you look in that mirror? He wants you to see him or at least he wants you to see you the way he made you, which will look exactly like him. But what usually has to occur when that mirror is flipped for the first time, what do people normally see? They see themselves the way they imagine themselves. They see themselves with the flaws, with the brokenness, with the failures, with the disappointments. They see themselves first in this very raw look at something that most of them, that's the reason that they're in there. They're trying to get rid of something. They're tired of something. They're tired of the brokenness. But our first glimpse at ourselves, as God sees us, when we can get past that brokenness and we begin to go on this great adventure and say, how does God see me? I want to tell you that every time that we have that encounter, it should create a moment that truly stills our heart and our minds. 
every time that we get square with God and he lets us see something about the way he sees us, a peace ought to come over us. He ought to still the trouble in our hearts. He ought to bring calm to the turbulence in our mind. Every time, especially the first time, but every time we get a glimpse of us, the way God sees us, we ought to be struck with this wow and recognize that because of something we had never seen before, the way he sees us, it ought to be peace. The message that I shared with you this morning, that piece of revelation that came from Graham Cook, everything God expects of us, he must give to us first. That's a glimpse at us. What does it tell us about us? That everything that he's going to ask of me, and we, told, we went through that list, Love the Lord your God with all your heart. What does he first have to give us? His love. Be the light of the world. What does he have to first give us? That light. Be ye therefore perfect. What does he have to give us so that we can actually meet that requirement, that command? He has to give us the perfect one to live in us. He's never going to command us of anything of us, expect anything of us that he doesn't first give to us. What should that do in us? It ought to bring peace. It ought to calm a lot of things in us, still a lot of questions in us that he's not ever going to ask anything of me that the provision doesn't come before it, with it. If that truth about who he is in relationship to who we are, I don't know how to say it except for that ought to bring calm to us, peace to us, still our questions and still our minds if they're troubled. Our previous conclusions should immediately yield to that new truth. I don't care what you believed about yourself. I don't care what conclusions that you've drawn about yourself. Every time God gives us a glimpse, our old view ought to yield to the new. What would it mean if we hang on to the old when God's brought the new? Who's God? Us. If I'm going to believe me and my perceptions over the truth that he's giving me that says I am choosing in this moment to be God over my life and I don't need you because your truth doesn't do anything for me. And I know that that happens a great deal. Most believers stay blind through all this journey and never discover what God has really established about them. We choose to stay blind, continuing to believe that this book was about what to do, trying to get that right, and never allowing God to speak identity and truth, how he sees us to us. So how does God see you? We start with very simple and acceptable truth. We are formed by the very breath of God and we're made in his likeness. That's a truth that ought to settle over us. I am made in his likeness. I have been given what I have been given because he breathed it into me. He breathed life into me. The power comes in that pneuma. We can recognize that God is spirit and those who know him must know him in that spirit. These are simple truths that we can settle down and let them settle over us. And every time he shows us something like this, it should change us. But I want to go back to that very first conclusion, the very first thing that he shows us. You know, this was taught to us very well. It had been brought up before, but Scott Lopes did a great job of teaching this. The first understanding we have to know about ourselves is that we are not physical beings having a spiritual experience. We are not physical beings having a spiritual experience. You are not your body. You've been given a body, but you are not your body. You are not identified by what this body looks like. Praise the Lord. 
That should have got a hearty amen from some of us. We are not physical beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings born from the breath of God who are having physical experiences. We've got to get that right. Our mindset, our framework, where we begin will be totally backwards if we don't recognize that we are spiritual beings being allowed to exercise that spiritual reality out in this physical body. Because if I think I'm a physical being having a spiritual experience, then I will chase the spiritual experience. I am a spiritual being having a physical experience. So this allows us to proceed to the scripture that I want us to look at tonight. If we can get that part down, that we are spiritual beings, it allows us to understand this better. Colossians chapter two, I'll begin reading with verse eight. I will promise you when I read this and we talk about it, some of us in here are going to struggle with this. It is not going to make sense. Beginning with verse eight, Colossians two, beginning with verse eight. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Profound statement. In him, in Christ Jesus, dwells all of the fullness of the Godhead in a bodily form. And you are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power. What does it mean that we are complete in him? Paul in this passage doesn't say you are becoming complete. He doesn't say that this is something that you're working at or something that you will gain. He is saying that in Christ Jesus, you have been immersed into Christ Jesus. And if I am in him, and he is in, in him holds all this, the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The minute that you put me inside him, in him, I, I live in him, I breathe in him, I have my being. Then in him, I am complete. You think about that for just a minute and it will blow your mind. What does that say? If that statement is true and we can grasp what he's telling us about ourselves, how much correction do we now need? None. That can't sound right. That can't be right. How much correction do I need if I'm complete in him? Danny's right. And this second question, have we already been glorified? If we're complete in him, should our being be doing exactly what his being is doing, which is establishing glory? Absolutely. We are complete in him. How many needs are going to go unmet? How much trouble is going to come our way that the provision is not already there? Can we even get our mind around that phrase? Complete. If you are a believer sitting here tonight, and that's between you and God, but if you're a believer sitting here tonight, then we should be able to comprehend the truth of what it means to be in him. Again, we, it goes very much back to the teaching all the way back into Genesis chapter one. When God says, let us make man in our image, male and female created he them. And we know, according to Genesis one and Genesis five, that at that point, everything male and everything female was in Adam. I don't know how anybody could even question or debate that very long because at the end of Genesis chapter two, when Adam says, oh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Where had she had to be then? She had to be in him. 
Where was her identity? Where was her fullness? Where was the complete reality of who she was? It was in him. So we understand what that phrase means. We're not kind because we were taught to be kind. We're kind because our kindness originated in him. In him we live. In him we breathe. In him we have our being. Not in him we have our doing. In him we have our being. We are complete in him. I went back and looked at that word complete in the Strong's Concordance. This is in general what it says. There's a lot here, but I'm going to kind of pick through it without changing the meaning. To make full or to fill up. So all of a sudden we begin to get connected with this empty cup that has now been full, filled and is running over. What completes the story when we're filled and we're overflowing? To fill, to be full, to cause to abound, to furnish or supply liberally, to liberally supply, to render full, to complete, to fill to the top so that nothing shall be wanting to full measure, to fill to the brim, to consummate a number, to make complete in ever particular, to render perfect, to carry through to the end, to accomplish and carry out, to carry into effect, to bring realization of matters of duty, to perform and to execute. We begin to get this picture and he says, this is who you are. Again, not debating, not saying this is your target. This is what you should be aiming for. But what would happen if tonight we could believe him? What would suddenly happen to our disappointment? Where would it fade? It would fade in him. Where would our confusion go? Where would our frustration go? Where would our uncertainties go? They would all have to yield that truth that we believe in about ourselves. that confusion that we're in has to yield to the new truth that he just gave us by revelation. We are complete. Hard, hard, because all of our teaching this says, but you got to work for it. You got to strive for it. You got to struggle for it. You got to keep after it. All of that teaching and, and he's saying here, you're complete. In the days of Jesus, a name was one's full identity. The name you were given was designed to be that description of you that would perfectly fit. What do we know of Emmanuel? What did that name tell us? God is with us. See, that name told us. It told us the great reality of one's identity. What were we fixing to experience in Emmanuel? God had come to be with us to show us, to teach us, to live among us, to give us this perfect theology that was his life. To believe in him means to put your identity into his identity. Let me say that again. To believe in him. What we said we have done when we became believers. I believe in him. I have faith in him. I trust him. Again, we're missing some of that word because again, right now, you are conforming to that pew. You put faith in that pew. The shape of your body right now looks like that pew because by faith you have rested. You have put your faith in him. And what happened immediately was that your body conformed to that pew. And anything you do trying to change that picture will make you uncomfortable in the pew useless. My faith, my belief in him allowed me to, for my identity to perfectly be, uh, to be immersed into his identity. We then are remade. We are renamed in him. My identity is suddenly what he says, not about what I say. If we don't accept this completeness, and again, 
whether you do or whether you don't, how you want to process this is certainly up to you because I want to tell you this is a piece of meat put in your mouth and not milk. You got to chew on this. Milk of the words you can swallow pretty quickly. This is meat put in our mouth so that we can chew on it and say, well, God, what does it mean for me to be complete? But if we don't accept this completeness that has been accomplished by him, we confess only a form of godliness, but we will never know the power thereof. What he's talking about. If we don't believe ourselves to be complete, fully furnished, fully corrected, fully instructed, fully prepared, fully knowledgeable, filled with authority, if we don't see ourselves as complete, we will have that form of godliness that the world knows so much about when they're looking at the church. But we individually, as described in the scripture, will have a form of godliness, but we won't ever know the power. The power of God comes in the understanding that he has made us complete. When we dare believe the truth about who we are, we will stop looking for what the world can offer. We'll have no need anymore because we are complete. It won't take the world to satisfy us because we will finally believe that we have been made complete in him. Lord, we thank you for this tonight. We thank you for this scripture. It's hard. We understand it up to that point. We understand what it means for in you is the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. We read that and we, can't, we grasp it. We know that everything of God was brought into the reality of Christ, that he in earthly form was still the fullness, never less than God, never more than man. We understand the enigma. We understand the strangeness of that. But Lord, we also recognize that by you, in that bodily form, was the fullness of God. And that then by us, that we are complete because of you. Let that sink in. It'll change our lives. So many things will fade. What happens tomorrow will fade into this truth. What happens next year will fade into this truth. The story's complete in him. We are complete in him. If we step outside of him, if we could even imagine doing that, we understand the confusion and frustration that is often brought. But as children of God, we have been made complete in him. Let us understand and accept that. Because Lord, I know even in a group this size gathered on this Sunday night that there are questions, confusions and uncertainty that need to be answered by this truth that we are complete in him. I just pray, Lord, that by your revelation, this truth will become real to each one. We confess it and believe it in Jesus' name. Amen.